Jesus taught many things during his three years of, uh, of itinerant preaching ministry. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John said that if, all, if everybody wrote down everything Jesus did, the world would not be big enough to contain all the books that would be written. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole, right? But John's point was that there was so much more that Jesus did and said that was not written down. I mean, that's kind of neat to think about, isn't it? That there are other things that Jesus taught that by the Spirit of God didn't make it into the Word of God. There are things that Jesus did. Think about it. He was ministering every year for for three years. So there's things that Jesus did that just simply were not written down. And that's kind of a cool thought to think of. But of all the things that were written down, the message that is probably best known is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, found both in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, though somewhat different. Jesus preached this message most likely on a flat area on a side of a mountain. The reason I say that is because Matthew said they were up on a mountain. Luke said they were on a plain. So probably Jesus spoke this message on a flat area on the side of a mountain. And he began this talk with what we call the Beatitudes. Remember, those are the blessed statements that we looked at last week. They are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, and, and etc. Right? There's some other things, of course, in those Beatitudes. We said that Matthew's version focuses, at least it seems that way, to focus on the spiritual side of things, where, where Luke's gospel tends to to focus on the temporal, material relationships of right here and now. For instance, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Where Luke says, Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now I have really no way of explaining why these two men took these two emphases. But I will say to you this morning, this I know, the poor and the hungry who are poor, in spirit, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the poor and hungry, you know, who thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. That I do know. Now, there's another thing we pointed out in Matthew's gospel that is worth me repeating again. And that is that Matthew clusters together in these three chapters, five, six, and seven, he clusters together a lot of sayings of Jesus that most likely most likely were not preached all at the same time. As a matter of fact, scholars agree that there, I think there's five discourses where Matthew lumps material together. Maybe I shouldn't say lumps. I like the word cluster. <laughs> Sounds like on purpose, right? He clusters together statements that seem to be about the same subject. So in chapter 5, 6, and 7, you know, he clusters things together. We get to the Olivet Discourse. He clusters things together that probably weren't all said at the same time. As a matter of fact, Luke, who says at the very beginning, my objective is to write a detailed chronology of the life of Jesus. Matthew, I mean, Luke records a lot of the same things that Matthew records in this sermon, but he puts them at different times, right? So, uh, the parables, chapter 13 of Matthew, it seems pretty obvious that Matthew is clustering together many, many parables of Jesus in one, in one area. So, so why is Matt doing that? Why is he clustering together these, these statements of Jesus? Why is he expanding the Sermon on the Mount to include some of these other things? And I think quite simply the answer is that out of the lips of Jesus, and organized this way by Matthew, is, is God's intent to share with us the kind of lives we are to lead as followers of Jesus. 
In other words, these are all the words of Jesus. Nobody's saying Jesus didn't say these things. Jesus said all these things. We're simply saying Matthew has clustered them together, probably from beyond this message, from beyond that time on the mountainside, right? But, but why did he do that? Because what Matthew is doing is organizing the statements of Jesus to tell us this is the kind of life you need to lead. This is the kind of life you need to live if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus. And Matthew's going to bring them all together so we get a really clear and definitive picture of the kind of men and women that you and I ought to be. Now, there is to be a balance in the life of the follower of Jesus. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. And we need to hold this tension. We need to hold this balance in tension always. The Bible says, by grace, we have been saved through faith. All right? I've been saved by faith, not by my works. But the same Bible also says we are his workmanship created for good works. We're saved apart from our works or our efforts or our religious traditions, but we are saved for good works. And and hopefully that's really, really clear to you. It needs to be. The, The problem is we tend to, when we're always trying to find balance, we tend to swing pendulums too far the other way, right? Happens in life all the time. And so for years in in American Christianity, we talked about the life we need to live as a believer, right? And so the gospel sort of got lost in there. You know, the good news of Jesus is different than I need to live a moral life. Now, I need to live a moral life. I need to follow Jesus' commands. I need to be like Jesus, okay? But if if we swing the pendulum that way, that is not the good news, everybody. That's not the gospel. The gospel's on this side of the pendulum. The gospel is that God saves us apart from our works. He saves us by faith. In other words, he saves us through Jesus, but he, he applies that to our lives through faith and not through our effort. And, and so in an attempt to try to bring the pendulum back from our religious moralism of, the, of maybe the last century even or last 50 years or so, the pendulum has swung so far this way that sometimes we, we forget that God calls us as followers of Jesus to live a certain kind of life. I know somebody that I really love dearly, and, and just, just recently, in the last month, in this conversation with this, this person, they were telling me that, hey, I believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter how I live. What I do is not related to my faith in Christ. And, and folks, I, I think Matthew, quoting the words of Jesus, clustering them together for us, is trying to say, that's not true. This is the kind of man and woman you need to be if you follow Jesus, okay? So the text that we've come to is is Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through verse 16. Only three verses. I'm going to read them. You follow along. You are the, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles back in the back. I want to give you one free. Please get a Bible when you leave this morning. You need to have a Bible. You ought to try to read it. It it, it definitely, the Bible is the word of God and it can impact your life. Verse 13 through verse 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything, but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives it and, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now Jesus is going to use two analogies in this in these in this talk, in this sermon on the mount. He's going to use two analogies. Uh, that reveals something about us. He calls us salt and he calls us light. And he says, we are the salt of the earth. And then he says, we are the light 
of the world. So the question we ought to be asking ourselves is what does Jesus intend to communicate to those men and women back then on the side of that mountain when he said that? And what does he want to specifically communicate to us? How do you and I apply this to our lives that we are salt and light? So let me share with you two things I believe. And again, this is me trying to interpret the words of Jesus. It's not interpreted for us. But, but I believe there's at least two things that Jesus wants us to get. One of them is this. Our value as disciples of his kingdom is immense. Our value to the world as followers of Jesus is, actually I'd written in my notes immeasurable, but I backed off that a little bit and said, well, maybe it's not quite that much. But honestly, salt and light are immeasurable in their value to the world. So when Jesus calls us salt and light, I believe he's trying to say our value to the world is incredible. In ancient times, salt was a necessity of life. It had such value in seasoning and other things like preserving, okay? The qualities of salt were one of the most highly prized minerals in the world. Salt was so important that in, in those times they used it as money. It was monetary compensation. And so Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. The word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which refers to the payments that Roman soldiers were made in salt. That's where you get the word salary. You know the statement, he's worth his salt? You know where it comes from? It comes from the fact that you were paid in salt in those days, right? And uh, so Folks have said there's 11 uses, primary uses, of salt in Jesus' day, all right? So salt was immensely valuable. Now here's what I want to say to you. I believe that Jesus is trying to say to his followers, we are immensely valuable to the world. Light is also invaluable to people. It was, it was how people navigated after dark, right? After the sun went down, life stopped without life. So by comparing us to salt and light, Jesus is making the statement, you guys matter. It is the Christian worldview, and it is consequently Christians themselves living out the Christian worldview who have changed the world for so much better. It is us, followers of Jesus, who have changed the way the world looked at children and women and education and compassion and humility, and forgiveness, and and basic humanitarian care, that all stemmed from us. That all stemmed from our commitment and our loyalty to Jesus and seeking to live out his life in our lives. It doesn't really matter whether the world agrees with what I'm saying right now. Some of you here may not be followers of Christ, and you may be saying, yeah, I'm not sure I really agree with that. To me, it doesn't really matter whether you agree with me or not. The, The value of the believer to the world is incalculable. And and I don't have time to defend that. I've defended it before. I'm just going to leave it out there. Stan Cathy was preparing for marriage. And so he did, he's cleaning out his garage. And in his garage uh, hung a a copy of the Declaration of Independence that had hung there for 10 years. And he was cleaning out his garage and he took it down to Goodwill and he sold it to Goodwill. And Goodwill sold it to a fellow by the name of Michael Sparks for $2.48. Michael Sparks recognized the value of the Declaration of Independence. It was actually, it was actually a particular version of the, of the Declaration of Independence that was so rare from 1823. He ended up selling that copy for almost a half a million dollars at auction. My point is this, whether you recognize the value of something or not is immaterial, right? Its value is inherent. And our value as believers, this is what I want you to grab hold of. I want you to understand this. Your value as a follower of Christ is immeasurable. 
It's immeasurable. And our value as believers together is also incalculable. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, our value as followers of Jesus is, is, is great. And here's the second thing that I, want, that I believe Jesus wants to communicate to us is because our influence can be so pervasive and so powerful. We as followers of Jesus can persuade, we can influence our culture and our society around us. In fact, I think the value, our value stems from the fact that we can have such powerful influence. Like salt, we have the power to influence anything that we contact. Just like salt preserves, we have the, we have the ability, because of who we are in Christ, to influence people, to, to touch culture and change culture. The light that we are and the light that we share gives us the ability to illuminate things so that others might see them. And so, beloved, listen, you know, I believe Jesus is trying to communicate to us, number one, you're valuable. Number two, you're valuable because of your influence. Now, one thing I want you to note, and we'll come back to this at the very end of this talk, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, notice that the you in those statements is plural. You know, really, it's, it's not like you, Al, have influence, but you do have influence. Individually, Billy, you have influence. But that's really, I don't think, what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you, plural, you, my followers, you, my disciples, you, Bacon's Castle Church in 2017, we have influence. We have power to change culture around us. We are valuable to the world in which we live. Just as salt affects everything it comes into contact and darkness dispels light always, so our influence cannot be stopped. So that's the big picture. That's the things that I think underlying or foundational that I believe Jesus wants us to get from his statements or his analogies. You are salt and you are light. But the next question that stems from this is is sort of like this. Okay, so that's true. How do we influence how, how am I salt? How am I light? And again, I, this, this is Jimmy trying to interpret what Jesus said. I believe I'm right, but of course you need to weigh it all against the word of God. But I believe Jesus has two things in mind when he talks about how we wield this most important influence, okay? And the first one is this. Our influence comes by way of our lives. Our influence comes by way of how we live, it comes from who we are in Christ and how that, is, how that is lived out on a daily basis in our life. Salt can be a, pre, a preservative. It can be an antiseptic. It can be a fire catalyst. Uh, it was fertilizer, and, and we've already talked about other things. But honestly, I think that the thing that Jesus is referencing here with regard to salt has to do with its savor, has to do with its ability to make things taste good and to make people thirsty. And the reason I say that is because in the text itself, Jesus talks about salt becoming tasteless. Tasteless. If it becomes tasteless, it's not worth anything. And so I believe Jesus, I believe the the issue that Jesus is referencing with regard to salt is is the influence that our lives have uh, on others. Thus, to be salty is to be like Christ. And it's to live our lives like Jesus lived them. It's to look like Jesus and act like Jesus and think like Jesus and, and behave. I know that's the same as act. But we, we are to be like the Lord Jesus so that people will, will be thirsty for him 
and people will find the savor, the goodness, the flavor that Jesus brings to, to the lives of the people that know him. Young salesman, I know you've heard this story before, but a young salesman disappointed that he loses a sale goes back to his manager and he says, it just goes to prove to you that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And of course, his sales manager said to him, son, it's not your job to make them drink. It's your job to make them thirsty. You know what? That's, that's our job, folks. That's always been our job. God's people. Let's go back to the Jewish nation. God, God called Abraham and he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And here's what's going to happen. When people see the relationship that I have with you, they're going to be drawn to me. You're going to be like salt. You're going to be, you're going to be the savor, the flavor that's going to draw men. You're going to make people thirsty when, uh, when they see when they see you. Now, the problem was most of Israel didn't have faith. Most of Israel didn't believe in God. Or they believed in God, but they didn't follow him. They didn't trust him. They didn't have faith in him. The Bible says only a remnant of Jews believed. By the time that uh, uh, Elijah fought the, the prophets of Baal, there were only 7,000 out of the millions of Jews that God was willing to say, there's 7,000 haven't bowed the knee to me. Most of the Jews were not living as salty people to draw men and women to the Lord. Now, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we are the people of God, a holy nation. It's our job to do what the Jews were supposed to do in their nation, which is that we are to make people thirsty to know God. We're to be this flavor on the world that people in seeing our lives will be drawn to God. At the end of verse 16, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. D.L. Moody once said, a holy life will make the deepest impression." Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul writes, For you were formerly darkness. We were in the dark, everybody. We were darkness, but now we're not darkness anymore. We're the light. But now you are the light in the Lord. Walk, that walk there means live, live as children of light. There's something influential about a disciple of Jesus who lives like Jesus. There's something about our lives that makes people hunger to know God when we live like the Lord Jesus. And I've thought about that. Why is that? Why why is it that when we live like Jesus, we draw people? Why is it they want to know the God that we know when we live like Jesus? Here's what I came up with. Because when I live like Jesus, I'm filled with the Spirit, and here's what's going to be true of me. I am going to be loving. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be filled with joy, and I'm going to be filled with peace, and I'm going to have patience, and I'm going to be filled with self-control. And you know what? I'm going to have all of those things even when my world is falling all apart. Even when my world, I'm being persecuted, I'm, I'm, I'm being maligned, I've got all kinds of... Remember, remember, Jesus said in verse 12, in verse 11, you will be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, for the kingdom of God is yours. And so when when I'm persecuted and I still have peace and I still have joy and I still have kindness and I love my enemies, the world is going to be salted by that. And they're going to be drawn. They're going to be drawn to know our Savior. Now, here's a question. It's rhetorical, but it's, it's directed at each of you. Are you making anyone salty? I mean, are you making anyone thirsty by being salt in their lives? Are you making anyone curious about your life because your life is a showcase of the life of Christ? 
I mean, that's how it ought to be, everybody. Your life ought to be a showcase of the Lord Jesus. Your life ought to be a salt shaker that is just salting people's souls so that they are drawn to you. Remember verse 16, Jesus said, they'll see your good works and glorify God. Now, let me move on to the second thing. So I said there's two, two ways that I believe we wield influence. One of them is by our lives. The other one is by the influence of our words. I think it's our lives and it's our words. That verse, verse 16, see our good works and glorify God. How would anybody know? How would anybody know that your works are as a result of the character of Christ being formed in you if you don't say so? It's obvious, obvious, obvious. Our good works are accompanied by our good words. Sometimes Christians put up this false dichotomy and they said, hey, man, you, 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 you preach Jesus with your words, but I'm going to testify to my faith in God by the way I live. I don't have to say anything. I can just live my life. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. Listen to what I'm going to say. If you believe that, you are either unbelievably selfish or, or you are incredibly naive. Your life, your life is what salts people. But you can live the best Christian life you've ever lived. You can have the best moral day of your life. And you know what? People will walk away. And if you don't say with your words, the reason my life is what it is, is because of Jesus. If you do not say that with your words, then then people will walk away and say, wow, that person's good. They're better than me. I want to be like that good person. I want to try harder. Or they might say, well, that person, maybe they're a Buddhist. Or maybe they're an Islamist. In other words... We are called to share our faith with our words, to talk about Jesus with our words, and to talk about Jesus or share Jesus with our lives. Our lives are not an adequate witness apart from our words. Your life is not an adequate witness of Christ apart from your words. We name the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus needs to be on our lips. And our lives need to substantiate it with our works. Listen to me. It's not one or the other. It's not my life versus my words or my words versus my life. Your words are salt. Your life is salt. Actually, it was the other way around. (laughs) Your life is salt and your words are salt. They're what draw people to Christ. Both of those in conjunction with one another. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, talking about us believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God saved you so that you may proclaim the excellencies of of him who has called you out of darkness. Now listen, when I live for Jesus and I live like Jesus, then I am proclaiming with my life Jesus. I agree with that. But that is not what Peter is alluding to here. Peter is saying you and I were saved to proclaim with our words the very excellencies of God. I mean, it is both of those. Jesus expects good works and good words. Both are necessary to glorify God. Dr. John Getty went to Anatom, an island in Vanuatu. I'm not sure I pronounced it right, but he went in 1848. 24 years later, uh, he died. And on a tablet erected to his memory, these words were inscribed. Quote, when he landed in 1848, there were no Christians. When he left in 1872, there were no heathen. 
probably not true totally, right, as far as especially the last part, but how did John change that island? I tell you, did he do it by his life? Absolutely. His life salted. His life was a savor, a flavor of God. But I tell you, he also did it with his words. Could not have led everyone on the, on the island to follow Christ without his words. So let me recap. You and I individually and all of us together are valuable to the world beyond measure because we can influence people to know and love God by our lives and by our words. Everybody with me? All right, I'm almost done, so just hang in there. There is, there's one more thing that I want you to see from the text, and here's where I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help us. There's one more thing in the text. Let me read it again from your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Here's this, I mean, you, know, you're probably, you probably got it, but here's what Jesus is saying. If you aren't salty, you are good for nothing. If you aren't salty, you are good for nothing. Think with me for just a moment. Salt can't become less salty, can it? Our pure salt from today, is it, is it, is it NACL, you smart people? I think that's the, did I get it right? Well, whatever it is, y'all ask Paul later. But anyway, um, Pure salt, I mean, if you put it in your mouth, it just dissolves down to nothing, right? But in this day, they mined their salt from the Dead Sea. And so it was a combination of salt and other minerals. And so after they had extracted the salt from those minerals, however they, you know, however they were doing it, however they were using it, after those minerals no longer were salty, They were just a composite of some old minerals that didn't serve anything anymore. And Jesus said, that composite that's left over from their salt, you're good for nothing. If you've lost your salt, you can't become salty again, and you're good for nothing. Here's the implication for us today. If we don't live our lives as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, we are good for, we're not good for anything. I know it sounds harsh, and I know it sounds, it sounds like too extreme, but that seems to me what Jesus is saying to those men on the hill and to us today. If we're not salty, if we're not living as disciples of Jesus, then, then we're not really good for anything as it relates to the kingdom. Now, I don't want to chase a rabbit and, and talk about well, how does this relate to salvation? If people lose their saltiness, are they saved? Frankly, in the context of what we're talking about today, I don't care. I really don't. I don't want to chase that rabbit. I don't want you to chase that rabbit in your mind. What I want you to hear is is it's possible for you to live a life that is of no value to Jesus, your King. It is possible for you. It is possible for us together as the people. It is possible for us to be a church that is worthless to the kingdom of God because we're not living as salt and we're not living as light. It is possible for us to waste our lives. That's what Jesus is saying. In the next statement Jesus makes about light, he says, it's ludicrous to think of someone lighting a light and then sticking it under a pail. Why would anyone do that? And you know, and that's exactly the point. They wouldn't do that. 
You wouldn't light a light and put it under a pail. You would light a light and you would stick it up as high as you can in your room so that everybody benefits from the light. You would pick it up and put it up high so the light would benefit everyone. And in the same way, Jesus is saying to you and, uh, you and me today, he's saying, you are called as a disciple of Jesus to put your godly life up high and on display. You, you hear what I'm saying? If you're a follower of Jesus, God is calling you to put your life up on a light stand. Your life is to be put up here for people to see. Because your life, your life will then be that salt, will then be that flavor, will then be that thing that causes people to, to turn to Christ, to want to know, to want to know more. We, we weren't called as disciple of Je- disciples of Jesus to hide our relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Christ should be first, foremost, out in front, out, out there for all to see. But the fact is that Jesus recognizes that men and women would claim to follow him, but would instead be saltless in darkness themselves. That's what he recognizes, that men and women like you and me, men and women who would say, I am a follower of Jesus, would instead of being salty and light, they would be saltless and they would be darkness. By definition, an influence must be different than that which it influences. The Christian, therefore, must be distinctively different than the people around him, delightfully so, okay? We can't influence the world for God when we are just like the world when it comes to our lives. We can't light the world up if we hide our light under, under a bushel of worldliness. We can't, we can't light the world if we do that. You know, if we revert to a lifestyle of darkness, then, then we will not be salt. We will not be light. Now, here's where there's something wrong with our American Christianity. George Barna said, and I quote, The average Christian in the average church is almost indistinguishable from the rest of society. The fundamental moral and ethical difference that Christ can make in how we live is missing. When our teens we claim to be saved get pregnant and do drugs at the same rate as the general teenage population. When the marriages of Christians end in divorce at the same rate as the rest of society. When Christians cheat in business or lie and steal and cheat on their spouses at the same statistical level as those who say they are not Christians, something is horribly wrong, unquote. Around the world, Christians are praying for us as Western American Christians. Here's what one Chinese leader says, quote, We in fact are praying that that the American church might taste the same persecution so revival would come to the American church like we've seen it in China, unquote. A few weeks ago, we read a, a parable of four soils. And one of the soils starts off well, but then just becomes encased with worldliness. Jesus called it the thorny soil. And and the thorns of worldliness just choked out that plant and killed it. It's easy for us to fall into this trap of being like the world we live in and wanting it more than wanting to be like Jesus. Now this morning, as I'm practicing my message, I'm you know I'm, I'm I've been thinking about this all week, and, and it's just and it's been there, but it just it bubbled up this morning. It bubbled up. 
And, and here's what bubbled up in my heart. How, how am I salt and light? How am I different than the world? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to live immorally. I'm trying to be holy. But how, how am I living differently? How am I living like Jesus? So that people would see Jimmy and say, Man, I want to follow the God that he loves. How am I living differently? And you know what the answer I came up with is, is it's just, it's not that different. How am I being light? How am I being light with my life? You say, well, Jimmy, you know, you're, you're not cheating on Ann. You're, you're trying to live for, you know, you're trying to live morally. You're trying to overcome lust and greed and materialism in your life. And so you're, you're trying to live morally. Yes, but, you know, how about the light part? You know, my, my, here's my life, but, but it doesn't seem all that different really than other people's life. It's just as American as everybody else's. And, and, then, there's, and then there's this thing in my heart about, about my words. About my words, you know. Where, where, where are my words being light to anyone? I mean, I mean, I'm here with the family, and, you know, but this is just like lighting light with light, right? I mean, we're all light. So this doesn't count. How, how is my... How is my life and my words being light out there? And I had to honestly say, you know, God, I'm not very salty and I'm not very bright. My light's pretty dim and my salt is pretty saltless. Now, Jesus asked a rhetorical question about how does salt, how does salt become salty again? It can't be and it's thrown out. And that was true. But, but folks, listen, you know, all analogies fall short. I want to tell you this morning you and I can become salty, and you and I can become light. And what's needed is repentance. What's needed is for us to acknowledge, I'm not a very bright light, and I'm not very salty. And, and, and God, I want you to change that. I want you to help me. And listen, you know, my, my view of God is that you know, God's not pulling all the strings. You know, God could pull all the strings, but God's not pulling all the strings. And so he calls on you to humble yourself. He calls on you to repent. He calls on you to make a decision to follow him. And so this morning, here, here's, here's what God's put on my heart. I, I want to call us, you, all of us at Bacon's County, I want to call us to repentance. I want to call us this morning to say to God, God, make us salty. Make us light. And that might mean you personally need to do that. But, but, but I, I, want to, I want God to see us corporately as this family of God here in Surrey, I want God to make us light. I want God to make us salt together as a church family. I'm glad we're building a building, but a building isn't salt, everyone. A building isn't light. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll use that in some positive ways, but buildings don't draw people to Jesus. You and I do. You and I do by our lives and by our words. And so this morning, I, I want to ask you to respond to the Spirit of God. God, I pray that you would change us and make us, help us, Lord. Because I know it's, it's not apart from our cooperation with you, Lord, to, to be the salt and light that you desire us to be. But work in us that we, we might repent. We might feel the weight, Lord, of conviction. Father, I pray for every one of us to, to hear your voice. How, Lord, am I to be salt and light in Surrey and other white counties? How am I to do that?
Lord, I pray that corporately our church will be salt and light and, and that men and women in our community will say, oh, how they love one another. Oh, how they love me. Lord, how different they are. I, I pray, God, that you would make us so different as we follow Jesus that, you know, not different weird, although if that's what it takes, Lord, we'll be different weird. But, Lord, we want to be so like you that men and women would be drawn to you because of us. Lord, may, I, may we wield the influence of a godly life, but we, may we also wield the influence of our words. May our words be such that they, they share the love of Christ and the righteousness of God and, and with convicting power. Lord, use our words to point people to you, to make them thirsty, Lord, to give them a flavor of who you are. God, we, uh, we pray that your name might be glorified in and through us as your people. We ask this in Jesus' strong, perfect, holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web.